The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films. But our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. guys welcome back to the tragedy of cinema podcast the alien episode this is part two because there was just so much useless information no i'm just kidding because I, so I was gushing for half an hour and right. i couldn't stop and then jimbo's like well we gotta do part two now yeah <laughs> uh but it's uh you know it's just one of those classic sci-fi shows or just a classic show that you want to make sure you give out the information that's cool and awesome when there's especially when we cover some movies that there's not enough uh Stuff and then you get some that's overbearing. So uh, we figured we just break it down in two parts so people can split it up while they drive or work out or whatever. So, yeah. so that at least that we don't have to go through any of the technical stuff. We'll just jump right into the fun facts and trivia that we've divvied up amongst ourselves. So here we go. All right. So Kyle, mm-hmm. among some of the ingredients of the alien costume are plasticine and Rolls Royce engine parts. <laughs> So the alien's actually a transformer. Exactly. A new angle. That's awesome. Cool. Um, while he was working on the visual effects for this movie, Brian Johnson was simultaneously working in the same capacity on Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, Episode 5. Just doing all kinds Can of crazy stuff. Can you imagine those two stuff. at the same time? That sounds like an insane workload, but it doesn't kind of explain. Like some, it, it explains the terrific visuals and his talent, too. Because it all right. came into more the more. Uh, the space jockey prop was 26 feet tall. The what? The space jockey. Oh, the space jockey. Oh, wow. Yeah, the size of that stage was must have been huge. Right. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and the wide shots of the space jockey props. So Ridley Scott used his two sons to make the props seem bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, just a little bit back and forth here. Um, I've got some stuff on space jockey right here. One from Ridley Scott. Um, I always figured the space jockey was somehow a pilot, and he's part of a military operation. If that's the word you want to apply to this world. And therefore, this is probably some kind of carrier, a weapon carrier, a biological and biomechanoid uh, carrier. Biomechanoid carrier of the lethal eggs, that's Ridley Scott. Um, and then later he went to um, uh, further develop that in the, um, the film uh, Prometheus, mm-hmm. where he actually showed um, with the characters who essentially would become the jockeys later on. Um, doing... That's kind of an underrated film, I think. Uh, especially like the, the sequel that came after Alien Covenant, really both, um, I think they complement each other really well. And Prometheus itself is underappreciated, I agree as well, because like. Um, there's enough of that film that gets stuff right in a good way, and it's still overall good filmmaking. It's just there's like one or two scenes that are so kind of like laughably absurd that it kind of kills the whole movie. And especially it's you know, it's audience representation. Like the internet kind of ruined that film in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. where they kept making fun of scenes, and it's like no, there's it's actually not a bad, it's not a terrible film, it's not a great film either. It's it's okay, and having the kind of the um, the um, 
the reception. It, it either has to be great or the worst thing ever. Kind of like in the binary world that we live in on the internet sometimes. Um, that's unfortunate. But that's still, that's a, that's neither here nor there. It's not, <laughs> this is alien. <laughs> yeah. So you, you can go back from the, from the space jockey note. Uh, for the alien's appearance on the shuttle, the set was built around Bolaji Badejo. Uh, giving him an effective hiding place. However, extracting himself from the hiding place proved to be more difficult than anticipated. The alien suit tore several times, and in one instance, the whole tail came off. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's going to be a tough prop to hold, especially maintain. A sex scene between Dallas and Ripley was scripted to show how casually the crew members would solve long periods of abstinence. Another reference to this was a deleted scene where Ripley inquires uh, with Lambert whether she ever had sex with Ash. Tom Skerritt later said that he discussed the necessity of the scene with director Sir Ridley Scott, thinking that it added nothing to the narrative and only interrupted the flow of the movie. Scott agreed, and the sex scene was ultimately not filmed, but he revived the idea of crew members having casual sex for Prometheus. A scene originally cut but reinserted uh, for the director's cut shows Lambert slapping Riley in retaliation for Ripley's refusal to let uh, her Dallas and Kane back on the ship. According to Sir Ridley Scott and Veronica Cartwright, every time she went to slap Sigourney Weaver, Sigourney was shy away. After about three or four takes of this, Scott finally told Cartwright not to hold back, really hit her. Oh, <laughs> Thus, the very real shocked reactions of Weaver, uh, Yafet Koto, and Harry Dean Stanton. Uh, the dead face hugger that Ash autopsies was made using fresh shellfish, four oysters, and a sheep kidney to recreate the internal organs. Filming had to be done quickly because the organic material would go bad very fast under the studio lights. Oh, my And I God. bet it stung. Yeah, could you imagine the smell of did that? You, speaking of that, did you ever dissect a frog or anything in school? Worm? Sheep? Um, yes, art? we did, but they were all like, they had like soaked in like from mouth to mouth. Did you ever do They it? had that stench to them, but nothing too bad. Well, what did you dissect? Um, we did fish, I believe. We did fish. I don't think we ever, ever did frogs. I did a frog, dude. Yeah, I did a fish, and it was and, really and, and my lab partner for that, uh, she listens to the show, which is Leanne Hobbs Abbott. We were, <laughs> we were in there, and she was gross outside. I'm over there and I'm cutting on it right and she's like well let me do it let me do it and, and I remember this because it's one of my favorite uh, elementary school memories or junior high memories is I said okay so I, I tossed the thing over to her uh, the pan with the frog that was pinned down and, and she leans in real close right and she, and she she's she's like she's gonna do it and and all of a sudden I went ribbit and she <laughs> threw, the thing, threw the whole frog against the wall or whatever <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so yeah. that's just another childhood uh, memory yeah. from me. So I, I was going back to uh, the, that scene of Veronica Cartwright like slapping Scorny Weaver in the face to get that genuine reaction like that too. You know, I, I largely uh, I think still largely like I think really Scott so like that, that that kind of filmmaking is probably a bad way to do it because you hurt people in real life and that's not that's not okay with me. Uh, but I do think it makes some amazing scenes sometimes. And I remember like um I was listening to it um like just a couple weeks ago. I was, I was watching some videos about the Abyss. And uh, James Cameron did the same thing to Ed Harris in that film. Maybe we'll cover the Abyss sometime in a later podcast. I don't know. Uh, but basically, there's a scene where the Abyss, where Ed Harris gets into like a like a like a, a deep sea diver suit, and they fill it with the um, the, the highly oxygenated liquid. I forget what they call it. The movie. But they really did it to, to Ed Harris, and it looks it sounds like. 30 years later, and he is still fuming about it. Like, yeah. still wants to kill James Cameron for... James Cameron essentially just drowned him on video for the sake of a film. And it's just like, that is disgusting. But what? Great cinematography. Oh, yeah, yeah. The scene's amazing. Of course, the scene's amazing. But it's like, don't actually do that, you madman. Oh, man. Oh, he's so the the decal on the door of the Nostromo... Uh, is a checkerboard square, the symbol of Purina's pet food label. It's meant to des- designate alien chow. <laughs> if they made the movie now, it'd be a QR code. 
<laughs> that you would that you would do, scan, scan, scan it would take you to the website for the film. <laughs> According to a quote from Veronica Cartwright in an I magazine, when the aliens tell wrapped around her legs, they were actually Harry Dean Stanton's legs in a shot originally filmed for another scene entirely. <laughs> Uh, the embryonic movement of the facehugger prior to bursting out of its egg was created at a, uh, was created by Sir Ridley Scott using both of his rubber-gloved hands. So, Kyle, you want to go and take a few? Yeah, sure. Uh, John Hurt recalled how he and Ron Cart were nearly poisoned while filming the exterior <laughs> shots of the plantoid. At one point during tube during the shooting, tubes broke on their suit, causing some kind of aerosol to leak into their helmets. Oh, no. They both nearly struggled from fainting, but were sure it was all very safe. Hurt was less than convinced, and Hurt was right. Yeah, uh, I think we talked about that. Remember we did we talk about the, the kids. They put their kids in yeah, there. Yeah, and then the kids passed out as well. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Specifically in this case, too, like the aerosol leaking into their suits, that's probably even more dangerous at that moment. They're probably nearly actually killed. Um, yeah. um, Ridley Scott recalls how he determined he was about to be casting um, just right. The studio grew nervous of the production start, start date approaching, but Scott wasn't ready until he was sure that the Nostromo crew was perfect. The way he sees it, the right casting can solve 50 to 70% of the problems the film might run into. I believe I might have covered these notes before. I might have to check to make sure I have the right notes here. Um, but you keep going. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read the next few and make, just to make sure. Um, the room where Brett kills, um, it gets killed by Xenorph was a point of contention between Ridley Scott and the producers. They didn't understand why there'd be water pouring or chains dangling in the ship as this. Scott, feeling he needed the extra movement in the scene, stuck to his guns and got the chains. And the, same, and the chains ended a lot to the scene. Uh, it's like the constant movement allows the Xenomorph to kind of sway in there where you don't even see them in that first scene. Until and I think you up. said that you... Uh when the last time we recorded that you could actually if you looked up you could actually see him hiding in place. Yeah, there's sight. like one cut of the scene where like he's dead center in the frame, but because everything else in the scene is so dark and swaying along with the xenomorph, you don't even see them until right. like the next scene afterwards. You know, it's one of things like only after rewatching it do you realize like, oh snap, the alien's right there. That's insane. Yeah. Uh, the computer screen displaying Nostromo's orbit around the planet contains a hidden credit to Dr. Brian Weibel, one of the programmers for the animation. Within the top frame titled uh, deorbital descent. It is possible to isolate the letters blob, but we need to cover the blob on this. This is a great movie. I never, I never um, sat down Dr. And Brian, the blob. I feel bad about it. You have never seen the original blob? I've never seen the original blob. I know, I know, I know. It's a, it's a missing piece Can't of film history again. Uh, the grid like flooring of the Nostromo was achieved using upturned milk crates painted over. So, uh, in an interview for Metal Hurlant, Sir Ridley Scott revealed that to make the action more realistic, the flight deck was wired so that flipping a switch on at one console would trigger lights somewhere else. The cast then developed work uh, routines for themselves where one would trip a switch, leading to another to respond to the changes at his workstation and so on and so forth. So they're all just... That's why all the lights are like... That's really cool. Yeah, so nobody knows what's going on. You know what I mean? It's like Kyle just going over to the lights and just going... I have to know. Kyle, the original cut of this movie ran for three hours and 12 minutes. Once again, that's another thing of Ridley Scott and James Cameron. I think, oh my gosh, once again, going back to James Cameron, I'm going back to these two creators. Really. They, um, the recent, like, his rough cut of the new Avatar 3, was, I think it was five and a half hours long, and he wants to do all the CG before he cuts any scene at all. Like, you are insane. Don't do that. You insane, man. A uh, closer look um, at the alien eggs in the scene right before the face hugger reveals that slime on the eggs is dripping from bottom to top. So Ridley Scott did this intentionally by shooting with the egg hanging from the ceiling and the camera upside down. Kind of creates a sense of unease. There's also kind of like the, um, I think the ship too, because it has that layer of fog right above it too. Like, how are they being connected in their kind of like, uh, not a, I want to say almost like in in the state of neutrality, basically like that, of uh, almost being kept in hibernation in a way. Right. Really cool stuff there too. Technology, sci-fi stuff. According to Sir 
Iron Home, Ash's Head contains spaghetti, cheap caviar, and onion rings. <laughs> cheap caviar. Sounds like, sounds like a good time to me. Let's have lunch. Exactly, right? Yeah, dig uh, Yeah, Fat Kodo, who played Parker, actually picked fights with Bolaj Badego, who played the alien, in order to help his on-screen hatred of the creature. Uh, oh, guess who... Uh, Balaji, sorry, I'm going to butcher this name. I'm just going to call him BB. Uh, but Balaji Badio, Badejo, uh, beat Peter Mayhew to the part of the alien. Mayhew had previously played a different alien, the Wookiee, Chewbacca, in Star Wars: A New Hope. Huh? Yeah, Peter Mayhew would have been an interesting. Cho- I mean, Can you see the alien? Like, <laughs> what if the you know was like nine feet tall? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, too. but they were both pretty tall. So yeah, yeah, they were both kind of big. And guys. I met Peter Mayhew before he died, and it, he's he's dude. He was tall. He was awesome. Oh yeah, all kinds. He was a good person. Yes, yeah, he yeah. was. He was great. Just sit there and talk to you. So, mm-hmm. um, copywriter Barbara uh, Gibbs came up with the fame tagline in space: "No one can hear you scream." Uh, the engines of the narcissist coming to life was created by having water pour out of showers with strong arc lights around it. This gave the illusion that it was plasma. Uh, the slime used on the alien was KY Jelly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, I'm going here. Um, Scorny Weaver's father, Sylvester Weaver, created your show of shows, which launched the careers of many comedians, notably Mel Brook. John Hurt worked with uh, Brooks several times the next day, and appeared in The Elephant Man, History of the World Part 1, Spaceballs, which itself parried this, his role in the film. So, cool hmm. stuff there. Small world moment there. Yeah. Um, when Ripley is trying to establish radio contact with the Earth, she says, this Nostromo is out of the Solomons. The fictional area of space she's referring to is reference to the real-life Solomon Islands in the Pacific Ocean, which are far from civilization. The Nostromo itself is far away from Earth civilization in this film. So, cool little fact there. Um, oh, oh, then we went to the, um, the spoiler section of our trivia items here. So, like, if you haven't seen the film, what, what are you doing here? Obviously. Especially in part two. But um, <laughs> here's where we have like, more explicit spoilers of the film going on, which I'm sure we've said spoilers already. Um, it's here. Uh, the movie was a Originally scripted with um, the end with Ridley escaping the Nostromo in her shuttle and the alien dying on board the Nostromo. Sir Ridley Scott thought this ending was too simplistic, so he negotiated with the studio for an additional half million dollars budget and a week of filming to add a fourth act to the movie, showing how the alien had stowed away on board the shuttle. Scott initially envisioned a very narc ending where Ridley tries to flush the alien out, but the creature climbs back into the shuttle. Ripley harpoons it, but it makes no difference. It runs towards her, slams through her mask, and rips her head off. Oh my gosh. That's a that's a scene I want to see. It would then sit in her chair and start mimicking Captain Dallas's voice saying, I'm signing off. Hopefully the network will pick me up. The 20th Century Fox um, wasn't too pleased with the according to Scott while pitching the idea over the phone. Um, there was a long and uncomfortable silence. Within 14 hours, a studio executive arrived threatening to fire him on the spot unless you change the meaning where the alien would die. Scott later admitted that allowing Ripley to leave was the better ending. And oh yeah, because there. it spurred all the sequels. Exactly, exactly. You couldn't have all the sequels about that. Well, yeah, and you could, but you would lose the Gordon Weaver at which point, why make a movie? Right. <laughs> um, okay, another... Um, the rumor is that the cast except... Oh, uh, okay, we already covered that one. Uh, um, oh, um, fun fact about the Ash's blood is colored water. Um, milk was not used for the actual like, spewing of the blood scene when they murder Ash there. Um, it was just used for like his... Um, body shot scene where he was like a corpse um, let's see ash blood is colored water milk was not used as it would have spoiled too quickly under the hot city lights milk was used though for the close up spots of like his innards and the pasta and the glass marbles that made up his innards so cool stuff there um, Walter here and uh, David Geiler's most significant con- contribution to the script was to make ash an android although Dan O'Brien was been reluctant to acknowledge any positive changes by Hiller Geiler um, Ronald Shusset has ascribed the addition as a significant improvement to the plot I would agree ash's character kind of like adds a 
as the um, I think the corporate mischief part of the film that the the kind of adds like a little political commentary of the film overall. Or if it was just an alien movie, it would have been a little bit more too straightforward and just kind of disposable as many other monster mm-hmm. movies back then for. You know, at that point, just make the monster a beach ball and call it a day. Call back to the part one. <laughs> Um, next up, for Parker's death, uh, for Parker's death, a fiberglass cast of uh, yeah, but Cody's head was made, and then was filled with pig brains. The forehead was made of wax, and so that the alien teeth could penetrate easily. Barbed hooks were fastened to the end of the teeth to make sure it broke the wax surface effectively. So that barbed teeth thing then became later kind of like a visual motif of the alien, specifically having those really like, like almost chromed out teeth that kind of extruded. I remember specifically like the probably the best shots of that were like in um, I think it was Alien Three where she's on the planet and then almost like kind of like gets very close to going over his face. Yeah, it comes out. It comes out even. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I like, you can see like those. And you almost, see her like this. Yeah, uh, those uh, those bright barbed wire teeth are so visually distinctive as well. Part of kind of the uh, xenomorph silhouette as it were. So really cool there. Uh, Roger Dickon, who designed and operated the face hugger and the chest burster. Had originally wanted the ladder, which is the chest pressure, to pull itself out of Kane's torso with its own little hands. <laughs> peekaboo. Peekaboo. <laughs> pull itself out. Um, there was a lawsuit by A.E. Van Voigt uh, claiming plagiarism of his 1939 story Discord in Scarlet, which he had also incorporated in the 1950 novel Voyage of the Space Beagle, and it was settled out of court. So mm-hmm. that means it might have been a little bit, a little little bit more truth to it, or they just didn't want to hassle with it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the inside of the alien eggs, as seen by Kane, was composed of real organic material. Sir Ridley Scott used fresh cattle hearts and stomachs that were obtained from a local butchery. The egg tube of the facehugger was sheep intestines. Uh, the design team tried several things, but found out that organic material simply provided the desired wet and gooey look that they were hoping for. Yeah, wet, gooey, and also you get like because we're going to get talk to you guys. You get that kind of like that rotted flesh look, which is yep. disturbing in any context you ever see it in, regardless if it's human or not. So it's like it just creates that feeling of like Ugh, I don't even want to. I don't even want to be a hundred foot, hundred feet near that at all. Right. Yeah. Uh, sort of. They Scott cites three movies as the shaping influence of his movies. Kyle, can you name them? Um, there's three big influences in the movies. Uh, for this movie. For this movie. I have no idea what this movie would actually be. Go for it. Uh, uh, Star Wars, A New Hope, a 2001 Space Odyssey, and yes, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Wow. Okay. All right, Kyle, don't laugh at this one. Are you ready? Okay, I'm not going to laugh. I'm stone-faced right now. All right. Shredded condoms were used to create tendons of the beast's ferocious jaws. That is very creative. Interesting. Um, not smiling, guys. I'm not smiling. I'm I'm, I'm stone faced. He's, he's trying. I'm really trying not to smile at the idea of shredded commons used to make a mouth. Um, but that is very funny. He laughed. I laughed. I laughed. Uh, too late. All right, Kyle. Do you agree with this with this statement? Entertainment Weekly voted this as the third scariest movie of all time. Did so it's two and one. No. Third scariest movie of all time. Uh there are definitely movies that are I find more terrifying than Alien. I think Alien is entertaining to watch as not a horror movie. So, no, I'm just not going to say right. that at all. I, I uh, would have to disagree with myself, too. Yeah. Uh, what would you say was the scariest movie you ever saw, Kyle? Scariest movie I ever saw? Uh, gosh, I really don't even really have one because I, I don't watch uh, movies that like terrify me. You're talking about Strange point. Brew? <laughs> yeah, Strange Brew. <laughs> just just, it haunts my dreams every night. Every night. I'm like, why? 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 Uh, I changed that movie. You know. uh, but the, the chest-bursting scene was considered the second scariest movie moment of all time on Bravo's The 100 Scariest Movie Moments. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimbo, what's oh, your most horrifying movie you watched, you watched in your life? The the Fog. The Fog. Carpenter's The Fog. Oh, the Fog. The, when the, the, I'm telling you, man, ever since I was a kid, 
when those pirates came into that church, dude, at the end, and the fog rolled in, and yeah, that that was that's it. Yeah, I'm trying to think of movies that actually make me feel like really uneasy and terrified. If I think about it later in the podcast, I'll, I'll, I'll just okay. blurt it out. That's how I always do. Maybe I'll ask that on the uh, next uh, Real Talk that we're doing in a couple weeks. That'd be a good idea. Yeah, yeah. that yeah, gives you time, Matt. Maybe you'll be ready, Kyle. To kind of like, yeah. Okay. Uh, so Ridley Scott stated that uh, in casting the role of Ripley, it ultimately came down to Sigourney Weaver and Meryl Streep. The funny thing is, Meryl Streep and Sigourney Weaver were actually college roommates at Yale. Yeah. Or college mates. I don't know if they were roommates. Um, ultimately, Weaver was offered the job because Streep was mourning the death of her partner, John Cazell, at the time of casting. And I believe we had talked about this earlier. Yeah, yeah, those. yeah. Same thing. I feel, like one of the I, I feel like I'm in deja vu. Maybe this is Aliens. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, but also like once again, also like yes, I would absolutely have loved to have seen the Meryl Streep version of this film in the alternate universe. Um, I feel like no. it would have been a very different film, but I still would have loved to seen it. No, I, I, and that should be the one where the alien rips the head off. <laughs> that would have been the cut where that happened. For sure. <laughs> right? They would have. They wouldn't have argued that. Yeah. Uh, at H.R. Geiger, uh, Geiger's original illustration that inspired the look of the alien, the creature had eyes. For this movie, Geiger insisted that the creature have no eyes, thus giving the bleak appearance of cold and emotionless beast that hunts <laughs> by just, smell. Just get those little like spindly eyes and just, no, just get the googly eyes. Yeah, googly <laughs> eyes, and you just staple those on, and all of a sudden, it's the most non-horrifying creature in the world. It just looks like a Dumbo just character of like, why is his head so long? It makes no sense. <laughs> uh, later, as a child, but... Veronica Cartwright had appeared in The Birds opposite Doodles Weaver, uh, which was Sigourney Weaver's uncle. The yeah, let's see here. Uh, the scene with Alien exploding from the stomach was a reference that came to Dan O'Brien because he struggled with stomach problems. I hear you, brother. I hear you. Uh, the large space jockey sculpture uh, was designed and painted by H.R. Geiger, who was disappointed he couldn't put any finishing touches on it by the time filming came about for the scene. Also, the space jockey prop was burned and destroyed by a, a burning cigarette left on the model. Uh, the unfortunate event was covered by local television news station that evening. Man, that's sad, dude. Hmm. Yeah, that's rough. Uh, Kyle would want that in his backyard. No. As a child, Veronica Cartwright appeared in The Birds opposite Doodles Weaver. I think I just said that. Yeah, I'm right. Just that paper just out that Get out of here. We're just like we're just like parrots, just keep telling you the same thing over and over and over again. Um, here, let me take this one right here. Um, the shot where the Xenomorph tail goes through Lambert's legs and upper back was was actually taken from the scene in which Brett was killed. The pants and the boots don't fit what Lambert um, Brad Cartwright's character is wearing in that scene, um, where she encounters Alien. Originally, her character was to crawl away from the Alien, essentially like die from height fright hiding in a locker. But this was never shot. Mm. And uh, uh, later on, uh, it, it's been long th- theorized and fan speculation that. Uh, um, the tail essentially kind of killed her in like a sexually provocative way, rather. Huh. And that um, there was, um, I think it was the game Alien Isolation and the DLC um, uh, Crew Expendable that did work to kind of like um, almost canonize that fan oh, yeah. speculation of that the Xenomorph used his were tail. Those, were those games approved by Ridley Scott? Uh not really, Scott. Not to any uh, significant degree. Um, uh, well, well, yeah, Fox, really Fo- well, Fox Corporation. Um, so Fox Corporation, you know, it's it's a loose canon thing. It's not right. like Ridley Scott had any part of the games at all, really. Um, but um, I know um, the game Aliens Colonial Marines, which was a terrible, terrible game, um, actually did get approval. It was like this is they they he, they made a very big point in the marketing, like this is. Fox, this is alien canon now, according to the Fox Corporation, that this is important to the movies and all kind of stuff too. And Alien Call Marines had a terrible story. Alien actually had a good story that um, focuses around Sigourney Weaver's character's daughter 
and uh, trying to find her of character. Um, okay, interesting stuff there. And um, so it, it's a kind of thing where like the Crooks Minimal DLC does a lot of work to kind of like confirm what fans believe at the time, and kind of like you know build on those kind of topics a little bit in a fun way that I right. find really cool. So um, to preserve the shock value of the alien's appearance, no production images of it were released, not even to the uh, author Alan Dean Foster <laughs> when he wrote the novelization. Oh, wow. It's just like here, yeah, whatever. Uh, in the chest bursting scene, Veronica Cartwright screams when blood splatters on her. Her screaming and horrified reaction were genuine, just as the shocked response of other cast members. They purposely weren't told how much blood would come out and which way it would splatter on purpose, knowing that they would have the best response if they didn't know what to expect. Jeez. You better hope you get that done right one take, dude, because if you did yeah. that to me, it's... That's where you have to like bring in, this, like, bring in all the cameras you can possible, because we have to film it from every angle possible, otherwise we'd lose everything in the shot. Um, oh, uh, Brett's death was storyboarded by Sir Ridley Scott originally for the alien to use his inner mouth to take his heart out of his chest, hearkening back to the image of the space jockey and having its um, innards kind of like exploded yes, out. Yes, yes, yes. Um, the alien would then leave Brett where he would be found by Parker and Ripley, who's cradled his body. Scott abandoned this idea due to it being similar to the death of the Chesters scene. And the scene that now plays was made up by the day it was shot. In the scene as filmed, the alien would grab Brett's head so tightly in his hands that blood started pouring out from it as screams for Parker and Ripley. However, the studio balked the amount of the blood, so with finishing, there's only one brief shot of the alien breaking Brett's skull with its jaw and pushing through the ground before it drags him towards the air ducts with the cat watching. Um, the director <laughs> the restores watching. the shot where Parker and Ripley come in and see Brett being dragged off for a brief moment. Right. Yeah. Um, the xenomorph in the film for the um, theatrical cut only has four minutes of screen time and doesn't make its first appearance until about an hour into the film. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so Re- Re- uh, Ridley Scott has recently said that the Blade Runner movies share a universe with the Alien film franchise, which, of course, shares a universe with Prometheus. Even beyond that, the Alien and Predator franchises share a universe as well as shown in the Alien vs. Predator movies. In total, this means that five different movie franchises, Blade Runner, which is two movies, Alien, four movies, Prometheus, two movies, and Predator, four movies, and Alien vs. Predator, two movies, share a universe. This also means that there are a total of 14 movies of this franchise. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, but, but at the same time, like those franchises, all like they only have the equivalent of like nods to each other in some small ways that um, never really go too far in length. Like, like there's very few nods of like Alien. Like, I think Prometheus and Alien Covenant have a couple nods to Blade Runner, and then um, Blade Runner twenty forty nine had a couple nods to um, Alien going on. And besides that, there's really no like explicit connection in those universes. Like, you know, uh, Xenomorph isn't going to show up in the next Blade Runner three that's going to come out in like three years. Where when I watch it happen, exactly, or, like an end scene or something. And it would be so bad for the movie. That would be, that'd be a terrible movie. They did that um uh, originally um okay going back to my fact i'll take care for this page originally there was no subplot of the company betraying the crew when david Geller and walter hill rewrote this first draft by dan o'brien and ronald shows it um they wanted to find ways to make a plot more interesting they initially added the third act test where the ship cpu had a hidden directive mother was supposed to allow the face hug cane into um, allow the face hugged cane in the ship despite Ripley's objections although the company had programmed mother to reroute the trouble and investigate the origin of the species the computer functioned under its own special protocol. As Mother states in the final scene, she was not keen on betraying the crew, but she took a neutral place by allowing the creature to enter the ship, gestate, and evolve. And evolve. When Ripley scolds Mother, the CPU retorts that her allegiance lies only to science. The data for this key product would be fascinating for the scientific world. The producers and writer finally realized that this revelation would be too reminiscent of HAL 9000 in the film 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, so they kept Mother as a CPU, but incorporated Ash as the seventh and final character of, for the um, Nostromo crew who was always 
always intended to be a spy. Um, he was written as an android, and much of his attitude echoes that of the scrapped mother storyline. Um, he opens the hatch to allow the parasite into the ship. Despite the quarantine rules, he, in the director's cut, he monitors um, stain inside Kane, but lets it incubate. He also wants to keep the dead facehugger for further studies, and he repeatedly expresses his wonder at the new fascinating species. Ash even had extra dialogue about the key products found in space and orders by the company, but really Scott ultimately decided to streamline the death scene of him, making it more foreboding for the remaining crew. Mm. So, interesting stuff there, and I think that's a, a brilliant thing to add to that story. Otherwise, it would have been a much more you know, straightforward film that people wouldn't be talking about today. Right. Uh, so, really, Scott made sure that Bolaji Badejo did not take tea or lunch breaks with the rest of the cast so that their fear of the alien would be more genuine. Also, this is uh, Bolaji Badejo's only acting role. He vanished into a nominee after this. Oh, uh, also, he was uh, approximately four months on this movie. And then also, he regretted that no one can recognize him as the alien in the movie, but thinking back on Boris Karloff, Sir Christopher Lee, or other successful actors who began their careers by playing grotesque monsters, he added, the fact that I played the part of the alien, for me, that's good enough. Legally, I'll be given the opportunity of doing a follow-up, if there is one, Although he was training for a career on graphic design and commercial art, he exclaims, not if a film comes along. So, um, I don't know. Did he play the alien in the other movies? I haven't seen that much personally. So, um, I, I know they changed the alien's design so they didn't have to pay um, the designer. Uh, not really Scott. The, um, the Xenomorph designer. Uh, what's his name? Uh, shoot. <laughs> what That's else? Right. Yeah, but the, the original artist who created Xenomorph, they made it like a legally distinct version for the sequels, so they could still use the alien name, but not have to pay the original creator. Um, so uh, One of the working titles for this film was They Bite. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of this movie, wait for the credits, turn the volume up, and you can hear the sound of a pod opening. Did you stand there, stick around for the credits? Um, no, I did not. I know the credits did. of that. Sir Ridley Scott was so bored while waiting for the budget to be determined on this movie that in his spare time, he just storyboarded the entire movie and then sent it to the studio where they were so impressed with this vision that they doubled the budget. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, when she was interviewed about Sir John Hurt following his death on January 25th, 2017, Sigourney Weaver stated that she had thought Sir John Hurt was really dying when they filmed the chest bursting scene and did not realize that he was acting when they filmed the sequence and that his cast was not acting when the alien came out of Sir John Hurst's chest and runs off the table. I actually thought like a real accident right. occurred there for sure. Yeah, H.R. Geiger was the name I was trying to think of. Of course, the famous chest burster scene was in uh, spoofed in Spaceballs. In that scene, Sir John Hurt uh, has Kane and the Nostromo crew are seen eating and having a laugh over one of the crew members' joke. Hurt starts choking. The alien bursts out of his chest and Hurt says, oh no, not again. again? <laughs> and the alien performs, hello my baby, hello my dog, hello my ragtime gal, <laughs> from one for evening in 1955. Uh, the space is so good. Yeah, <laughs> the space jockey's body was painted with sepia glaze and then coated with frayed rubber latex. Originally, only six eggs were to be present in the egg silo under the derelict ship, but Ridley Scott stepped in and demanded that many more were required. I think we said, what, 150 eggs, if I remember the from the last Roughly night. around there, yeah. Uh, Ridley uh, suggested for the alien that they could strap two kids to an adult and have them wrapped in rubber. Also, they proposed trying a robotic alien, but safety was an issue with that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what would we do for a monster? Just tie two kids together. <laughs> Ridley, maybe you're the monster, actually. <laughs> wow. Uh, Dan O'Brien and H.R. Geiger were heavily inspired by the works of H.P. Lovecraft in the concept of alien, which you can tell. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, mirrors were used to make the Nostromo's corridors look bigger. Uh, Carlo Rambaldi's original alien face is now on display in the Smithsonian. Road trip, Kyle. We should go check Let's it out. Let's go right now. Uh, this wasn't the first time a Cartwright had been stranded in the black. Veronica Cartwright's sister is Angela Cartwright. Uh, she was Penny Robinson on Lost in Space. 
the first R-rated movie to receive a tie-in series of toys marketed towards children. Which, Kyle, um, when I sent you those pictures the other day, I was walking around that store and I found oh. Ripley, Ash, and Kane action figures, which oh, yeah. I There's almost had to buy. still a ton of alien merchandise you can get today. And I'm like, I think actually I have, I have some. <laughs> That's well, of course really you cool. do. Yeah. Uh, in order uh, to heighten the senses of claustrophobia, the actors and actress uh, director Sir Ridley Scott had the walls of the sets pushed slightly closer and closer in each day. Awesome. Can you imagine? That sense of reboding. I could have cool. swore I ran down this corridor perfectly it's fine. It's really good. Kyle has run really sideways good. through yes. there now. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Yeah. I don't think like making people's outfits tighter and tighter every single day so they just freak out and think they're getting away. Uh, in 2019, Disney acquired 21st Century Fox for $71.3 billion, Jeez. thus acquiring the Alien, Predator, Avatar, X-Men, and Planet of the Apes franchises along with their parent studio. So Planet of the Apes is a Disney now. Wow. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, I just, yeah, we. That's yeah, it's weird. It's sad. Uh, <laughs> consequently, this unofficially makes the franchise uh, ultimately connect to the Star Wars franchise, which Disney acquired for four billion in 2012. Wow! So Disney owns everything. We have already established yeah, yeah. that, which makes the you know, which makes the Alien Queen a, a Disney princess now too, as well. <laughs> <laughs> True, and Sigourney Weaver. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Uh, Tommy Lee Jones was met by Walter Hill to play Dallas, who had read the script twice and exclaimed he wanted to play the monster as it was the only part that grabbed him. So Tommy Lee Jones almost was the monster. <laughs> would have been. The monster. Yeah. Uh, the only thing would have been Barrel would be Robert, uh, or not Robert, Al Pacino. Al Pacino. <laughs> you screaming at me? <laughs> Are you screaming at me? That's Ralph De Niro. <laughs> oh, is it? That's Ralph De Niro, yeah. What Taxi- was, that? What was Al Pacino? You're thinking of Taxi Driver. Um, Al Pacino did the I'm Walking Here, I think. Either that where the taxi driver almost hit him, and yeah, she's just, I'm walking here, I'm walking here. I think he did that. Ah, either one. It I made that reference like several times this morning. It's probably what you're thinking of it. Yeah. And here's a spoiler. Uh, Ash never eats. The only thing he consumes is some milky white fluid. Although he is seen reaching for the box of cereal at one point, he's later revealed to be an android and white liquid for blood. Kyle, do you have any more notes? No, no, I'm through my notes, Jimbo. We have done the podcast. We have talked All right, about Kyle, to death. Now that uh, part two is over, what do you think of Alien? This is a ten out of ten movie, Jimbo. I can't. I, I'm not even gonna like. Uh, I, I'm gonna keep gushing about it. It's a. It's a. It's a dang near perfect film in my eyes. Do you think it's better than Aliens? Yes. Yes. Wholeheartedly. Really? Yeah. Yeah. In the same way, I think Terminator One is better than Terminator Two. Yes, I think it's a better movie. I think it's a different kind of movie though, because like Aliens is Alien is a horror movie. Aliens is a it's a war movie. <laughs> it's a western. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an action war movie. Same thing. In Terminator One, Terminator Two, Terminator horror movie, Terminator Two, action movie, all together. Like, cool but the stuff. Terminator ended up being the good guy too. Exactly. Exactly. The, the Alien's not the good guy in Part Two. Yeah, but there's a lot more good guys with guns in Alien Two. <laughs> um, so Alien though is uh, uh, one of the most like top tier echelon film for me and that kind of thing if I ever had a full if I ever had a top 10 list that didn't change every other day Alien would be in it for sure you know it's a, it's, it's kind of a perfect film in my eyes in so many ways so I really do love it to death I also love Aliens the sequels uh, too but not as much uh, but um, yeah this is a top tier film in my eye it's a, it's a horror classic it's a science fiction uh, masterpiece and uh, it's worth any cinema fan to go watch it at least once or twice in your life um, for me though it's a staple film where like I'm going to watch it many times every year for the rest of my life <laughs> so I think it's a great film Jimbo how do you feel about Alien? I I'm not going to give it a 10 um, I would probably put it down at the probably 8 range um, mm-hmm. it's just you know it's very slow at the beginning Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of buildup 
and then you always see them go into that one room with just like a bunch of computer parts you know and they're like yeah. typing in questions and you're like who is it? who's answering this and of course you kind of find out it's mother but you're like is this a living computer system or is it tied back to earth you don't know what's going mm-hmm. on here but then it has to be because they're like hey this is your objective and all that he's getting the inf- ash is getting the information back from earth or are they just directly and putting that into his brain you don't you know you don't really know um a very very good performance by Sigourney Weaver. Um, the uh, it was very well done with the alien. How they used the the, the shadows and uh, the lighting, especially the flickering of the lights and all that. Mm. Um, now the whole the ending, dude, where he she sh- shuts the him out. The, yeah, well, where she shuts him out the thing and then turns on the afterburners or whatever. He goes flying. You know, I, whatever. Uh, but yeah, I mean it's okay. It's mm. it's. Uh, I know you're a big sci-fi guy, so yeah. uh, that's that's one of the reasons you. Came I'm a shooter for the genre, yeah. right? So I know I, I usually uh, value your opinion on that. But yeah, to me, it's probably about an eight out of ten. It's not. Yeah, it's not the best in the world, but it's certainly not the least. I'll probably watch it a couple more times. Yeah, yeah. I, I have one last digression. I just want to get into a little bit. Um, like, I love the aesthetics of this film um, and other sci-fi film where it has like. Some people call it retro sci-fi now. If I like, the idea of predicting the future, the way look at the way it was like covered in buttons and mechanical and industrial parts that kind of evoke like a kind of like a, an industrial um, uh, building today or something like that too. Machineries, constant clicking, clacking, buttons like that. And um, I hate modern sci-fi movies, especially like Bradley Scott and Prometheus again, where everything's like a giant touchscreen. Everything's like the idea of how a smartphone works, but made large for a computer ship. And I always hated that idea because I think like. The thing that makes Alien 1 and Aliens 2 and other sci-fi films that oh, kind of impressive. Like, I like the idea that everything has to be made like industrial and that kind of like rugged and, and like um, resilient is because that's the only thing that could possibly survive in space travel, actually. You know, the idea of having like your computer touchscreen in space just seems ridiculous because everything breaks all the time, glass shatters, nothing's really that solid, and having touchscreens is not actually that convenient to work on. But having like rugged buttons to push on is so cool in a sci-fi aesthetic that I wish more films kind of went back to because like it's not... It's not modern sci-fi to me. Modern sci-fi feels like a joke to me, or it's like aliens and alien and alien seem more real to me as a as a sci-fi idea. And they would have like a few better monitors to get displayed information, but in reality, you still need that kind of like rugged. Here's a giant plastic button you got to just slap on to get to work because that's how machines have to work in space because you need something that's a l- very very reliable. Right. You never want a dumb touchscreen that will mess up and freeze on you for five seconds because <laughs> you're in space where you could die in a moment. <laughs> right. So right. I always love that aesthetic and hopefully um, new sci-fi films in the, in the future will kind of take that on because I think that's what they're kind of doing um, in Alien is that they're trying to think of like okay what's a you know what's a place we work at like we worked at Ford or where I work where I work now you know what are the places like how they would look up 300 years in the future where everything now is like, how would a smartphone look in 30 years <laughs> in terms of aesthetics? And I hope we find more ways of getting back to that industrial kind of uh, uh, aesthetic of a future industrial kind of look to it. And I think that future is having like machines built that um, humans don't interfere with at all. Like right. in a kind of cool way. So uh, I don't know. It was a small digression to the point where we're ending the podcast now. And I had to make that point because it just occurred to me like, I want to talk about that real quick. <laughs> Sorry, but well, keep let, going let Kyle, let the record state that Kyle would rather have a retro key, sci-fi, a regular keyboard, keyboard instead of a touch keyboard Is exactly true? all the time just because you like the clicky yeah i, like, I want the clicky clocky world of industrial sci-fi yeah all right so there you have it uh that concludes our alien podcast um, part two <laughs> no not alien part two alien oh yeah alien part yeah, two. yeah. <laughs> Jimbo. so uh, be on the lookout next week we have an amazing uh movie review uh that we are we've actually already done the best uh, it's called Lady in the Lake. Um, it is uh, a movie. 
It's in black and white, I think from 1946, if I remember, Kyle. Mm-hmm. And it's all shot in the first person. It is fantastic. Uh, me and Kyle both r- really like it. I think it's uh, there's only a few movies shot like that, so um, be on the lookout for that. Yeah. So, uh, Kyle, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. <laughs>